These are some excerpts from Café Culture's recent event on translation, art and word, which took place on 5th of February 2014. Our speakers for this event were the Slade's Sharon Morris, Tim Matthews, Professor of French at UCL, and Elise Aru, an artist who works between words and images. First of all, you'll hear Sharon reading from her current poetry. Cascode of Roselli's. The last time we drove north past Evalouen, my mother looking east towards the Camarthenshire Vans, a descending slope to the valley, she turned to me saying, we never go down there, it's very lovely down there, Glandur, Pridoen, Aravangavel and Chivoi Meunirtar. Something brave about these words, something unheard of, breaking tablets of stone. On the main road, the hawthorn is a hook bent in the prevailing wind. But here at Tiraval, between Pentregalar and Glandur, the beech trees grow upright and seaf, softly spoken. This is the cum, a cuscod, that holds my breath, enfolded in its place, holding the shelter from fear, the stillness of the heart's mind, sank dive before buds unfolding against entropy, our will a perfect pink voltage. Hannes, it's not the past, it's history. Hannes, my godmother says, knowing there is no history without a story, only the time of stone, dust, and ancient bones, hyena, reindeer, land where there is now sea, before the river never incised deeper. Wildflowers. They show us the truth of brevity, speedwell holding blue against the sapped light, expectant in a shaded world of love that should not be wasted, Ethai all through, each tiny flower a pearl from its grief. <coughs> of unknowing. Everywhere and everything, this is how I thought of God. Sundays, my father pulling me up while conquering. Each brow of hill a possibility. Each false summit an illusion. I wanted to know how old were the Priscelli hills, the age of their bluestone or the phase of orogenesis, wanting to look straight into his grey Atlantic eyes, knowing already that here unknowing is beauty, yellow gorse and purple heather, sheep and wild horses, butterflies, blue, white, red, buzzards raking the ground, giving way to the peak, thankful as an infinite sky, before the need for forgiveness, Wicklow Mountains a touch away. Cobbio, the poet Walden Williams, 1904 to 1971. He would call in the evening to see my father, carrying a suitcase to catch the night train from Plindowen. When I was six, I gave him my pencil, a pacifist, conscientious objector who refused to pay his taxes for the Korean War and was locked up in Swansea Jail. 
this monument is standing stone. Near the medit, Baldrigan, and Gavroy, Talmaniva from heaven, in every act of independent will. This is the Prasali I can never leave, a land to be exhumed, every grain of rock sieved and held, each molecule of sea and air distilled. Thanks, and we'll stop there. Thank you. Our next speaker is Tim Matthews, who's professor of French here at UCL. He's currently, my notes told me, working on two books simultaneously, which is more than I can contemplate. Uh, one on Apollinaire and one on Giacometti. And he's particularly interested in the relationship between literary art and visual art. And I think it's that that he's going to talk to us about now. Thank you. Uh, I've finished the one on Giacometti, I'm glad to say. So I'm not working two at once uh, anymore. Uh, and the, the one on Apollinaire I am working on is, is, is a translation of one of his novels. Uh, he's better known for a poet, as a poet, than as a novelist. Um, but I did embark on, uh, on translating uh, this novel to almost the last thing he wrote. And I want to say something about why that, that happened. Uh, uh, before I, I read you some of that. Um, I was asked, I'd written about Apollinaire before in a number of different ways and uh, moved on to different things, including Giacometti. Um, and then I was asked to, 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 to do a, a book about him, um, uh, a, a sort of critical biography of him. And I'd agreed to do it, and I, when I finished the Giacometti, I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And when I, when I came to it, I, I just didn't want to work that way anymore at all. I didn't want to write her another critical biography, however it would be inflected by my own experience. I just didn't want to do that. I didn't think it would help me get further into Aquilinaire. And the reason is that he himself is, is always operating between so many different boundaries and different areas, one of which is clearly uh, the visual and the verbal. And uh, he's, uh, one, of his, uh, uh, you know, one of the things he's best known for is, is creating poems by, by putting words all over the page. So there's a, a, there's a, a poem which I haven't got today uh, about the Eiffel Tower, which is arranged in circles uh, to show, the, uh, to show uh, airwaves and on which words are placed all, um, all around uh, in those circles. And the reader is asked to look and, and read at the same time and make up his own mind, her own mind, uh, about what the relationship to the Eiffel Tower is and, and other iconic uh, you know, emblems of, of the modern world. But he's always working with uh, the, the visual and the verbal, and also between different time periods. Um, one of the things he did was this bestiary um, in 1911 with the French artist Raoul Dufy, um, uh, called the Procession of Orpheus, the bestiary of the Procession of Orpheus. Um, and he wrote these, these little poems uh, next to them in the style of a bestiary, with a bestiary is a medieval uh, practice uh, using animals to uh, explore. Uh, religious and other truths. Uh, this one is about the, uh, the octopus, and uh, uh, it's written next to it, sitting, it's all my little translation of it, spitting its ink at the sky, sucking the blood of its loves, and finding it sweet, that inhuman monster is I. Jetant son encre vers les cieux, suçant le sang de ce qu'il aime, et le trouvant délicieux, ce monstre inhumain, c'est moi-même. And, um, you didn't, um, what's yeah, that? Can you scroll that down for me a second? Scroll it down. Yeah, yeah. Scroll it down for me. Thanks. Yeah. And so, um, 
Raoul Dufy wasn't the only one to be inspired by Apollinaire's poem. In fact, they two worked together. Sometime after Apollinaire's death, he who died in 1918, very much uh, uh, in our thoughts now with the, with the you know, the, uh, our, our rethinking of, of the centenary of the First World War. Um, uh, so much after, in 1979, then, Graham Sutherland was also drawn uh, to Apollinaire's bestiary, uh, to the bestiary and to his, to his and Apollinaire's writing on it. And he transforms uh, uh, Apollinaire's thinking on the on the on, on the uh, on the octopus into a picture of Freud. Um, you remember in in, uh, in that little bit I just showed you, Apollinaire talks about ink going into into someone's eyes, spitting into the sky, uh, the, the kind of inhuman monstrousness of, of individuals, um, and uh, what what that might mean for living together, and. Um, for Sutherland, that's produced a picture of Freud. Um, obviously, he was, uh, spent his whole life trying to work out the relation between desire and you know, impulse and socially responsible existence. So I wanted to work with translation simply because Apollinaire does himself so much. Um, and this novel is about um, uh, coming back from the war and, and the uh, social and emotional chaos involved in coming back from the war. First World War. So I'm now just going to read a, a few pages from it, um, and um, I hope I can communicate something about how much I've enjoyed doing it, um, although it's been a, a bit of a struggle. 1914 began wild and gay, you remember. Like in Gavani's cartoons, the period was overwhelmingly one of, car one of carnival. Dance was all the fashion. Everywhere people were dancing, and there were marked balls everywhere. Cross-dressing was the fashion for women, and they dressed their hair in dazzling and delicate colours, which reminded me of the luminous fountains that struck me so as a child when I visited the exhibition in 1889. Or they, or they were like a glow from the stars, and fashionable Parisian women had every right that year to be called Berenices because their hair ranked among the constellations. Sweet, fresh poetry, the most beautiful of all the arts. You give birth to our creativity, bring us close to the, to the divine. I love you with a love never cut down by the disappointments of life. You have lived with me ever since my earliest childhood and always will. The war has even increased the power of poetry over me. Because of war and poetry together, the sky is now forever one with my, with, with my head broken into the stars. Today Paris draws me close, and Montparnasse, which has become to painters and poets what Montmartre was 15 years ago, a sanctuary of simplicity, beautiful and free. Even though differently coloured from the Montmartre of before, the Montparnasse of now, and even during the war, is no less light-hearted, clear and easygoing. The American-style clothes of the artists today are no less baggy than those of the painters and apprentices before, nor cut from a different cloth. They are simply baggy in a different way. And after all, sandals are no less Germanic than the appalling elastic-sided boots of yours used to wear. Soon after, soon after the war, I'll wager without wishing it. Sorry. Soon after the war, I'll wager without wishing for it that Montparnasse will have its own nightclubs, its own singers and troubadours, just as it has its painters and poets now. When Bruyon sings of the, main, of the many different corners of this area full of fantasy and fun, the dairies, the barracks turned studio in the Rue Campagne Première, the extraordinary dairy girl on Boulevard Montparnasse, the Chinese restaurant just now disappeared 
and the Tuesday salons at the Closerie des Lilas, gone since the war. That very, that very day, Montparnasse will have lived its time. Thomas Cook will bring convoys of travelers, a popular travel agency will emigrate to other areas of Paris and take the Chinese with it, Patagonians, Comanche Indians, the friends from Limoges, the daughters of vigor and maybe even the biggest pain in the ass in the world who loitered there and got paid to leave. Take them all to another arrondissement and other destinations, other hills and vales and buttes, even the black buttes, I'm sure. During the war, the exquisite and touching idea of the doll portrait began to see the light, and it deserved every bit of its success. One of the first impressions I had when I came back and moved into the front was a scrap of phone conversation I heard in the hospital where they were changing my bandages. Selling those wondrous doll portraits everywhere. Who's talking? I never knew and it hardly matters. That really is a bit much, I thought, thinking about dolls at a time like this. But my opinion has changed since then. The dolls of, pa of Paris we used to show fashion all over Europe and surely that enhanced the prestige of France. Artists in Montparnasse, women artists, unsurprisingly, started using dolls to make portraits, a, char a charming idea which has already produced many agreeable works. If the fashion settles for these dolls, our grandchildren will have curious galleries to look at full of their ancestors. A performance of Hernani in the playroom, surely that's grandmother in the uniform of the Red Cross, just like in 1916 when she was young. Great uncle is close by, the cavalry officer of the choir. The young of today shouldn't forget as the young did after 1870, and we should make more memories and more doll portraits, which are a kind of living memory. I'm going to jump ahead to several chapters later, uh, where one of the narrators has gone to visit the Mormons, um, struck by the confusion in Paris, sex, social and sexual confusion. He's gone to visit the Mormons to see if uh, it works out better there. At that moment, a Negro from the banks of the, from the banks of the Missouri, from the Missouri, who had arrived that very morning pushing a wheelbarrow and travelling with a trapper from Michigan who had been setting traps along the River Jordan and on the shores of Lake Utah, jostled against fifteen wives of the elder Lubel person. He wore a blue shirt and had a tranquil eye, and he was trumpeting his goods all around the city, stopping every now and again to dance a jig in front of the houses that looked the most opulent. And that was when he pushed all these women in evening gowns roughly out of the way. As they stood aside, the, Americans, the American ones cried out irately, and recovering smartly from their initial fear, they fell upon the unwelcome creature and rained blows upon him with their, with their fans. He wanted to speak to the prophet, who was taking up his place in the troop near the patriarch, <coughs> together with the apostles. But instead he tripped and fell to the ground in front of the august array. The president stopped, and the whole line came to halt behind him. And as the trumpets continued to sound, the Negro cried out, I have seen Christ Adam come down with his wives from the orange sky, and God stretching over the infinity of space will gather to proclaim, to proclaim the redemption of the blacks. But Brougham Young turned to Kimball, who was laughing rudely, and inquired, What evil spirit is trapped for his sins in the tabernacle of this lying nigger? And four men emerged from the company of the Septuagint coming up behind, and without asking, took the scarf of the French woman Pamela was wearing on her arm. They twisted the long silk ribbon into a rope, tied a slip knot which they threw over a strong bunch in the mulberry tree by the side of the road, 
and seizing the Negro, who began to struggle and cry desperately, and Sam Candlin, son of the state of Missouri, and I'm a Yankee. They hung in to the applause of everyone watching, and laughter cascaded from the American women, whose eyes shone with the pleasure of being so promptly avenged. The hanged man was still struggling, his feet dancing the jig with the agility he had taught them, and on his dark face his eyes seemed like two big scorpions marching on each other. The general joy reached its height when a stream of saliva came out of his mouth, and a musician in the Nauvoo Orchestra, a one-time whaler, cried, There she blows! Just like a sailor scouring the sea from the masthead. The procession went on its way, leaving the dead man's fixed stare behind them, and his body as rigid as an opiometer. In front of it, a huge model of a seated woman passed by. She wore a crown of stars, and there were two men pushing her along on wheels concealed inside a cliff. A third one turned her head so that she looked like a living woman, and when from time to time this prodigious replica would speak, it was of these three men shouting from inside. I am American democracy from the land of big women and turbulent men who make giants more enormous than the enormous sequoias. Pamela was hardly listening. The day nights were passing by at that moment, their horses at the walk and resplendent in white, and she could barely tear her eyes from the one at the front, whose masked face turned towards her for a moment. In the crowd watching the parade, there were also a few federal officers who would smile whenever their eyes crossed with any of the Mormons, Mormon women. And Pamela saw that one of them was always looking over his shoulder to where the prophet's wives were standing. Wife 19 looked across at him, and their eyes were the pallor of wet myrtle. There was a group of people separating him, and the Jew Sherry de Mendoza was standing there. He had bowed his head as the float went by, where the papyruses written in the very hand of Abraham were displayed with so much pomp. After which he'd gone back to the conversation he was having with Chief Milotitz, the Uta of the Uta people, who spoke to him in short bursts in a guttural sounding English without any S, because of the difficulty these people had with pronouncing their consonant. The Uta walked up to Sherry de Mendoza and called him brother, and the Jew who had never met him asked him why. Don't you, didn't you know, the Indian replied, that according to the Mormon witness, we are descendants of the same race. Sherry de Mendoza thought about it as he bowed his head to the relics of Abraham. I believe you, he said, raising his head again. There are certainly analogies between the customs and rituals of our two nations. The word Uta is pronounced more like the German word for Jew, which could well be a sign of its Judaic origin. But really our spirits are hardly alike. Even the spirit of race and family the spirit of tradition as a whole inspires us both. The misfortunes that which have struck us and our position in relation to all the other races so very different from ours have given us a real ability to understand innovation and make use of it. We have a practical mind, not only for material things, but everything to do with intelligence and soul. But you, on the other hand, even though you are attached to your traditions, you don't preserve them or keep them pure, in other words, living and modern. You belong to the ten plebeian tribes, and we belong to the royal tribe of Judah. That difference between us explains the, low, the lowly state in which we find you now. It also explains our genius, which is to dominate by buying assets and Judaifying rituals. In fact, the Judaification of the whole Mediterranean basin is fast becoming a reality. And by the way, Mr. Uta Chief, don't forget I've opened a curiosity shop on Main Street, and I'll give you a good price for anything you may wish to sell. Any curiosity or archaeological object like weapons, cloth, 
leather goods, artifacts with feathers and engraved stonework, sculptures and pottery. I found homes for them in the private collections of the East as well as the museums of Europe. Which a chief miller takes foot gravely and not without contempt of this man, very possibly of his own race, who was proposing to sell the evidence of its glorious history. He shook his head and turned to the wife standing humbly by, bent under the weight of a heavy bundle on her back. In each of these two men lived ignorance, superstition, stupidity, and salaciousness, something more base than the place. But unaware as they but unaware as they were. The beliefs and practices of the state were being modeled on them, but just as man is made from the salt of the earth, the nations grow from the place. Thank you. I've already introduced Elise Aru, the artist who translates poetry into um, visual objects, and she's going to have a session that will be interactive. So put your minds in media, you know, dispense with shyness, have another glass of wine, and prepare yourselves. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, thank you to the organizers for inviting me and allowing me to show you some objects today. I'm first going to tell you a bit about how I got to translate poetry into poem objects and why I do it, and then I will explain a few of them, and if you have questions on other objects I haven't mentioned, maybe we can talk about that if we have time. So I'm interested in translation, but I quickly realized that I was interested in something else than just the words, although that's very interesting and challenging as an activity itself, translating words into other words, from one language into another. I started also translating from one medium into another. So the first translation I made um, when I started translating poetry of the avant-garde, so early, early 20th century, I started with a poem written on a page, published in a book, and it became, in my version, a sort of calligraphy on a canvas. So I disturbed the form as well as the medium. Um, what I do, I think, can only be done for me with avant-garde text, because there is this space of creativity, because I, we talked about it before, the graphic signs, the use of collage um, in surrealism, for instance, and in Dada as well, the use of free association, so allowing two objects which wouldn't have anything to do together to appear together in one, um, on one space, in one space. Um, and because surrealist artists were destabilizers of our firm's visual um, habits. So because they disturbed the norms and forms of seeing and reading, I thought that in translation I could re not reproduce, but incorporate this idea into my, uh, into my objects. So perhaps I should uh, take a few and mm -hmm. explain what I wanted to do. And you may have read them differently. And Okay, so I don't know if you've noticed, but those two are the only ones which are translated from French into English. Then I started translating from English, 
into English but poem objects. That's one of the early ones, it was presented like this, a blue pouch, and you could see some uh, little fragments of text. The actual source text was a poem written by André Breton, Le Corset Mystère, the mystery corset. And you could see on the page, on the, on the book, the different typographies that Breton used because he faked or included in his poem some adverts, some fragments of advertisements. So I think Aragon says that this poem was written, um, was a pure collage but with a few inventions here and there by Breton. What I did was to use newspaper paper, actually. I don't know if you touched the the fragments inside, and then I faked some different handwritings to sort of reproduce the typographies of newspaper. But this time, I didn't give you the order of the text, because there is a clear order on the book. So the reader has to find the direction of reading and the, the, the order of the fragments. Because they all come from different sources, the meaning is not always coherent, it's not always... It's very, the, the, Connections between the fragments are sometimes a bit loose, which allow the reader to find his own poem or her own poem in the in this, with this object. This one is the last one I translated, so from French into English. And I don't know if you've seen it earlier. It was all rolled up in a, in one roll, and it's a translation of a dream. So as you unroll the bandage then you start having these objects in your hand. A bit like someone who tells you a dream. You can understand the story. The story is quite easy. It's Breton meeting a woman in the metro in Paris. He follows her, they end up in a, in a meadow. Some, football, some players are playing, some um, men are playing football. He tries to play football, but he doesn't manage to, to score a goal. Um, so you understand the narrative, you understand the story. But once the person has told you the story, you're not a psychoanalyst. You can't explain the different meanings, what's going on with this dream. So you have the transparency of the glass, you can understand the narrative, but once you've done reading the, the dream or hearing the dream, you don't know what to do with it, so you're left with the actual object in your hand. Um, do I have still a bit of time? Yeah. Okay. So perhaps I should talk One is uh, perhaps what um, the scholars in translation studies call intersemiotic translation. That was a poem written in, uh, in a book again, published in a, a magazine first, a review, and then in a, an anthology of surrealism, which I have here. And what I did, so it's a poem by Humphrey Jennings. And what he was interested in is the transformation of one object into another. And it's, so the poem is called I See London. And what I did was to use books which are covered with London maps, different ones. And you have to find your own direction on this map, which is not a map because you couldn't find an address or a direction with this. So you have different layers of text. You have the layers of the text of the map with all the different um, parts in London, which um, may sound familiar. And then you have the poem, which you have to follow through the, the different layers, the different um, fragments of text. So here I was trying to emphasize this idea of one object which could become another, something we, we don't really know. It's 
sort of hybrid form between a map and a book, but it can't be used as a book, it can't be used as a map. And perhaps this last one, so that's the translation of She Is by Desmond Morris. Desmond Morris was uh, very interested in zoology and in this poem, once you've finished reading it, you've got the impression that this she, who we don't know much about, is sort of objectified. Uh, at the same time, she is stuck in this poem. We don't know who she is. And for me, the, the two ideas, the, the fact that he was interested in zoology and he studied zoology at university and then this poem made me think of a cage, which I tried to produce in a box. You can take the text out, I don't know if any of you did, read it and then put it back if you want. Thank you very much, Okay. This is the point at which I, I should introduce you. Eugenia Lofredo, who will tell you herself what yeah, it is that we have to do. Uh, well... To, um, she is co-founder of Creative Literary Studio, which is a blog on translation, on writing, and on text making. Yes, thank you very much. Um, so, well, welcome and thank you to the organizer, uh, organizer for having invited me. Uh, and I have to apologize. Well, to make some apologies from Manuela Petegela, who was supposed to be here with me, but she's looking after. A little daughter was born a couple of weeks ago, uh, so she'll be here to meet. And in fact, I'm going to use the we um, instead of the I, this is as if she was with me. Okay, now this is going to be a mini workshop uh, because of the time uh, at our disposal, which is kind of short, and is intended to practice um, these intriguing, fresh new ideas on translating, or rather, creatively translating work of art. Um, so we would like to, you to take part to this translation activity and so to your creative self. Um, and we would like to translate a poem, a very short Italian poem, uh, called Tramonto by Giuseppe Ungaretti. And you got the handouts. So not to worry if you don't speak Italian. Um, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll just give it a go. It's really it's just to sort of explore these ideas um, with the, this hands-on um, activity. Okay, I'm just going to read it out. Tramonto. Um, Il carnato del cielo sveglia oasi al nomade d'amore. Okay, I don't know if you're familiar with Ungaretti, but anyway, we'll, uh, don't worry, I'll give you an English gloss. Uh, so you could work with the, just you know the words individually. You got the color, flesh, skin, and art. We'll see why art in a minute. Of the sky, and then you got heavens, <coughs> wakes, wakens, rouses, oasis. Two in the domain of love. I've also got some, an example of translation. Put all these words together uh, by Diego Bassianotti. Sunset, heaven's blush awakens oasis in the nomad of love. Um, just very brief, short information on um, on Ungaretti. He was born in uh, Egypt in 1888 of parents who were Italian settlers. So Ungaretti lived in Alexandria until he was 24 and the desert regions of Egypt were provided the current image, images in this world. 
This is an example of imagistic poetry. A characteristic feature of imagistic poetry is to attempt to isolate um, single images and reveal the essence, which is similar to Japanese haiku. Il tramonto has a well-balanced um, structure. So we got, in the first line, seven syllables, second, five syllables, and the third one, seven syllables again. We got one image, but three different moments of this image. We got the sky and the color. Then you got the oasis um, awakening, and then you got the nomad. There is lack of the subject, <laughs> suggesting an attempt to universalization. Now, two terms. Cielo, an animated element, and nomad, uh, an animated element, come to be blended in a particular moment, the sunset, by means of carnato, the color of the sunset. And in this fragment of time, the awakening takes a visionary quality, perhaps a mirage. But mostly interesting is the, is the carnato. Um, Carne in Italian means flesh. And then you've got also carnato, it's the color of the flesh. But in painting, it's a specific color mixing for painting flesh. So you have all, you know, Raffaello, Michelangelo, they all mix their paintings, but you were to get the flesh color. So it's quite interesting to think of them. So what we're going to do now, uh, I would like to get you into small groups um, and have a go at translating. Uh, this poem. Uh, we only have uh, 15 minutes, so we'll try to do what we can. And you've got two ways of doing this. We could either go for a, a verbal translation, but even when, you know, if you use uh, words to translate this poem, you can use different poetic forms, um, a different literary genre, you can write a letter, you can write it in any form you like. And there's a second option, which is uh, any other non-verbal technique. could be an image, a collage, be a video, or anything else. So we, we would like you to experiment with different media or non-verbal techniques. Uh, because we've got 15 minutes and we, you, know, you can't make a film or you know, an image. But you can use your pencil, you can use your tablecloth, or your you know, piece of paper. So you can even use doodles on you know, the Sharon's kind of example. So you, know, you do <laughs> be creative. And then, you know, you can try different versions um, or, you know, just think of a project for translation. Uh, how, you know, how would the image, you know, look like or what about the collage, uh, etc. And then at the end of the 15 minutes, we'll get together and I'll ask some of you to give us examples of both, you know, the verbal and non-verbal uh, translations.